Okay. Um, I'll just start right into the biblical covenants. So after the fall, God sought to restore humanity into a relationship with him, and he used something familiar to the people of his day, and that's a covenant. We in our world today, we understand contract more than covenant. Jesus used a, the idea of covenant. And what a covenant is, is a covenant is a legal binding of two parties, which sounds like a contract. It's a means of creating a little legitimate relationship. Um, according to the one book I was reading, I'll give you their definition. It's a widespread legal means by which duties and privileges of kinship, relationship, may be extended to another individual or group, including strangers. And so a covenant is a means of bringing two parties together into some form of relationship. And it is typically more binding than a contract. So there were three types of ancient Near Eastern covenants. And I don't know how, where that video is getting to. The one is a kinship. And just like the word, okay, they become like kin. A kinship covenant is when two parties, two equal parties come together. And they form a relationship, and they each agree to certain obligations, and they each receive certain benefits by that relationship. They each assume responsibilities, and they each have benefits from the relationship. That's kinship. An example of a kinship covenant in, um, let me um, go here. An example of a kinship covenant in the Bible is in Genesis 31 between Laban and um, Jacob. And I'm just going to read verse 44. Let me get there real quick. Um, this is after Jacob had fled from Laban. And Laban says, why are you kidnapping my daughters? And what's going on here? They talked for a while. And they went through their a brief synopsis of their story together. And then um, Laban says, come, now let's make a covenant, you and I, and let us serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set up as a pillar. And they gathered some stones. They made this. They had a sacrifice and had this agreement. They came together. They were both equals, and they agreed. And this stone pillar that was a, was a monument, a witness to the, to the covenant that they were formed between each other. But they were equals. You see, marriage is a, is a covenant relationship between two equals. That two people come together, and they agree on certain things, to assume certain responsibilities, assume a certain measure of loyalty to that relationship, and they become kin-related. So that's one style of Near Eastern Covenant, ancient Near Eastern Covenant. Another one is a suzerain vassal. And you could say just suzerain or vassal. Suzerain kind of is the same idea of a sovereign, a king. This is a covenant that is entered into by two unequal parties, okay? This is typically a covenant that happens. I don't know why I always slant my words. Anyway, this is a covenant that typically happens when one king conquers another king and makes that whole kingdom their subjects. There you go. Maybe so. I don't, I don't know. And in this, in this, the vassal, a vassal meaning servant, we're going back to kind of like middle-aged language, suzerain, be, suzerain being a sovereign, the sovereign, the, the king who did the conquering, now gets all the benefits of this relationship. And the vassal has all the responsibilities. The only thing the suzerain gives the vassal is protection. So in other words, a king comes in, defeats this, this country, and they, they agree to be his loyal subjects. They might have to pay tribute. They might have to send slaves, a certain percentage of portion of their crops and the produce they make. And in exchange, the sovereign is going to protect them from anybody defeating them. And that's about the only... Um, 
benefit the vassal gets. The vassal is basically a slave to the sovereign. Not a very desirable covenant to enter into. Usually, that's why it's usually entered into because you have no choice. And then we have, did you did she get notes? And then we have a grant covenant. Okay. Um, these are equal parties, unequal, and these are also unequal. Okay. But the grant covenant, unlike the suzerain vassal covenant. This is a covenant in which the greater party, the conquering king or the king that has all the power, he actually takes on all the benefits. He takes on all the responsibilities. I'm sorry, let's not get confused. So the greater party takes on all the responsibilities and obligations of fulfilling the covenant, and the lesser party gets all the, the, the uh, benefits. And adoption is kind of like this. You, is, we, they, they often use adoption language. You, you adopt somebody, and you as the parent take on all the obligations. And that child you're adopting gets the benefits of being part of a family. Now, eventually, obviously, in today's day and age, they're going to have chores and stuff like that, but I'm not really talking about that so much. This is a covenant that's initiated by the suzerain, the sovereign, the greater party, who swears an oath binding himself to the covenant. You see this in, in we're going to talk about later, you see that in uh, the Abrahamic covenant when God has Abraham split the, cut those animals in half, and he walks through there, and he swears himself by oath took a covenant for Abraham, and at that interchange, if you read it, he's not expecting anything of Abraham. We'll talk more about that later when he tests Abraham. That is not a part of the covenant. The covenant was already there. It wasn't like he was, God was not telling Abraham, if you sacrifice your son, then we'll, be, then we'll go to this covenant. The covenant was already in existence. God took on all the obligations of that covenant with Abraham and swore, swore an oath binding himself to it. It is often in response to the vassal's loyalty, and you see that in Abraham, because of Abraham's faithfulness to God. God then entered into the covenant with Abraham. In many cases, though not all, it's granted when that, the, the lesser party, their loyalty is unequal or unparalleled or unheard of in that time, in that area. So Abraham's loyalty to God was unparalleled. His faithfulness was unheard of. And in, that, in response to that, God entered into a covenant with Abraham. Now, unlike this one, in the suzerain vassal covenant, this is a blessings and cursings covenant. The, the suzerain promises blessing for the vassal if he obeys, curses if he disobeys. He's going to be punished. Now, in the grant covenant, there's only blessings. There's no curses. Because there's nothing, there's nothing the vassal can do, the lesser party can do, to make, break that covenant unless they just don't enter into it. There's, their, their actions do not nullify the covenant because all of the obligations are on the greater party, the sovereign party. Are you with me so far? This, in this covenant, the suzerain, the greater party, in, in the biblical terms, God, I mean, in, in the, grant, the covenants we're going to talk about, God, or it could be a conquering king. It could be a king who wants to, some of the, some of the ancient Roman kings would bring a son into his house. So, so in, in there's, there are secular kings who entered into these types of arrangements. And there were times when they would, they would bind themselves unconditionally to, that, to the vassal, to the lesser party. And often in a grant covenant, this covenant extends. This one doesn't extend past that, that generation. Um, and this one doesn't always, though it could be stipulated. And this one, the sovereign is granting that covenant will be carried on through the, through the descendants. Obviously, this is the covenant we want, if we can get that one. And that would be a great one to have. Are you with me so far? Often as that grant, so 
I enter into somebody, I, I enter into a grant covenant with somebody. Say I'm the greater party, I bring somebody into my family, and I, and I offer them this grant covenant, and they get ready to die, it gets passed on. Usually it's associated with a name, or in David's case, David's throne. This is where they use what to us is ever, eternal language, like everlasting name, everlasting kingdom, um, everlasting throne. So it uses that language, and it's identified with that as it's, as it's passed on. Everybody with me? Three different types of covenant. Um, if it, this is the easiest one to think of as a vassal, because we kind of know what vassal means. If we're suzerain, I've never heard of suzerain until this study. And so I mean. Now, over the course of time, when and in any of these covenants, they would enter into this covenant, a body of literature would develop that would describe to te- and tell about the working out of this covenant, the history the stories and narratives, any songs or poems or hymns that would be sung in regard to this. And so we have the covenant. So we have a covenant that was written out. Uh, any of these three, it could be any one. And then there's a body of literature written about it that's the canon. Okay? And it becomes this canon of literature that's telling the story of the relationship that's formed by the covenant. Now, we want to make a distinction here between a canon and the canon. The scripture, the Bible, is the canon with a capital C. And it is, too, is a body of literature that contains stories, it contains poems, it contains proverbs, and it is the story of God's covenant relationship with mankind, the whole entire thing of it. I would suggest that. I would submit that, though some would, might disagree with me. But we do see that it's a body of literature. I mean, 40 different authors written over thousands of years, different genres, and so we want to differentiate between the canon and a canon. So Butch and I enter into a covenant. We have a covenant because we're married. Any, any love letters we write, any stories we tell our kids about our relationship, that would be, if it was written down, it would become part of a canon. That would tell everybody else a story of our relationship and how it worked out, the good, the bad, the ugly. And it would tell, it would tell about our high points, our low points, and it would be a means for our posterity, understanding the relationship we had. Okay. So that becomes known as the canon. So there are five major covenants in the Bible. And remember we talked last week about covenant theology, saw them all as one. And new covenant theology really just breaks it into the old and the new. They don't, they don't really separate. Into, I, haven't, I haven't seen too much new covenant theology that broke down the old, covenant, old testament covenants too much. I don't want to go into that to bring all that back up. Just, but there, we're going to be talking about five covenants in this study. And the one is going to be the covenant with Noah. That we're going, to, we're going to talk about that today, hopefully. And then the Abrahamic covenant. And I touched on that briefly. And the Davidic covenant. And the Mosaic. And the New. So these are five covenants. And we're going to go through each one of these. We're going to talk about where the covenant is in the Bible. What the canon of literature that surrounds it. And what, we can, what type of covenant it was. And what happened to all the covenants as they, as they went through time? Okay? Okay? As a synopsis, the Noahic covenant, the covenant is in Genesis 6, 6 and 9. In Genesis 6, God says, I will establish a covenant. And then in Genesis 9, he confirms that covenant. He makes that covenant. So this would be the covenant. Let me make a chart here. The covenant... And then the canon. 
Well, a lot of scholars. There isn't there is an Adam covenant, and I'm going to touch on that briefly when I get into the Noah covenant. Or I'm just kind of giving a synopsis of the covenant so we can kind of see where we're going in the class. So the Noah covenant, we read of it in Genesis 6 and 9, but they consider the canon to be Genesis 1 through 11. And that's the whole story coming up, leading up to it. The Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. Now there are various aspects of the covenant in this, and we'll go into that when we describe, when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant. But the canon for the Abrahamic covenant is Genesis 12 through 50, through the end of Genesis, okay? That's the body of literature that talks about the walking out of this covenant onto, onto Abraham's descendants. The Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel, I think, 7, is it 29? Let me just double check. I so hope I have it written here. It's in 2 Samuel somewhere. I don't have the exact verse, but I think it's, okay? But the canon is First uh, and Second Samuel and some of the Proverbs and Psalms. I can't read my writing. I'm sorry. Also Ecclesiastes, yeah. So the, the poetry books. Not all of them, not all the Proverbs, but some of the, some of the Proverbs, some of the Psalms. And, and, and partly to Davidic covenant included Solomon some, and so some of Solomon's writings are included in there as well. So let me, let me back up a little bit. So we have, um, no, I don't, I don't necessarily need to. I'm, I'm there kind of. And I, I, so I got them mixed up, but that's okay. So God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants go into Egypt. They come out of Egypt, and that's when he forms the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant is the covenant itself. I don't even have all these. I'm going by memory now because I didn't even write that out. The covenant itself is in Exodus and Deuteronomy primarily, although Leviticus and Numbers have some aspects to it. The, the offering of the covenant and the covenant ceremony is found in, in Exodus 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy, I think, 28 through 30. But the rest of the Old Testament from Genesis on, from Exodus to Malachi, is the canon of scripture, the canon surrounding the working out of the Old Covenant, of the Mosaic Covenant. In the middle of this covenant was we had this small, real small covenant with just David, with the house of David. Ends up being a very messianic covenant, but it's, it's within. So we have the big covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and inside that is this covenant that he made with the house of David. Okay? And then we have the New Covenant, which is both in the... Whoa, we see that. In, in, we'll talk more about that in the New Testament. The whole New Testament is the canon. Okay? The new, when Jesus comes and forms that, that, the New Covenant and the New Testament. All right. Are we, with, are we together? Does anybody have any questions? I'm going to keep stopping for this. We, just let me know. Um, if I'm now, why is this important? Because what happens is, if we don't see the difference, we end up looking at various things happening and thinking they're for us today, or we get confused in why God is acting in such a way. Prior, well, I should have these mixed up because I can't make a line here. But with the, I'll, yeah, I can. I can do this way. And with these two covenants, all that went on prior to Exodus 19 was before the law. There, there was no law. So that means when, when Abraham lied to Pharaoh, we think, how could he do that? that was, but there was no law. There was nothing that said, thou shalt not lie. There, it, we think this should be just a normal thing, the conscious thing. There was nothing. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed before the law. And we look at that through an old covenant lens and think that God was pouring out his wrath. And really God was 
coming to see, and it was, it was that what he had heard was grieving him deeply. Now, if you look at the Greek, or the, sorry, the Hebrew, and then the Greek too, the words are, I think the words are the same, because the word is, I should have looked it up. And to us, the word orgy means something far different than anger, or wrath, or deep passion, or grief, but that's the, uh, the Greek word, actually. Anyway, then, two chapters after the law, Two chapters after this law was introduced, that's when we see the first, there's the first sign of God pouring out his wrath and getting angry with them. There is one place before Exodus 21 where we see God getting angry, and that's in his dialogue with Moses. God gets irritated with Moses. Um, but other than that, and it, when we look at the Mosaic Covenant, we're going to see very different ways of, that God dealt with their disobedience and their grumbling pre-law and post-law. And there, there are differences post-law brought down punishment, <coughs> harsher punishment than what we see pre-law. Another thing is Job predates the Mosaic Covenant. So when we say, well, Job says that God gives and takes away, that was before the Old Covenant. That's not New Covenant thinking. God doesn't give and take away. We, we say, oh, what God gives and takes away. That's, that's long before the Old Covenant, let alone New Covenant. So... Um, uh, I think we'll get that. And another one is Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 is Old Covenant, but when, it's, when Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things, who can know it? We have a tendency to look at that now and think, okay, yeah, that's true. The heart, we can't really trust our own motives. We start second. No, we have the mind of Christ. We have the heart. We have the Spirit of God within our hearts. We can trust our hearts. Now, we are in the process. We are, we are in a now and a not yet in our heart, so it's not like, okay, whatever my heart says, that's right. We have to, but we neither, neither can we just claim, well, the heart is deceitful, I can't trust it. So this changes our perspective when we realize this. Because we're no longer reading the Bible through as a story, even though it includes narrative. And we look at each of these in chronological order, how they're connected, what happened, how and why, and we'll start to understand some of that. Any questions on any of this before I erase it? Because we'll, all of these we'll come back to. And I, so I'll keep that up there about the different, different canons, I think. So we're going to start with the Noah Covenant today. Stop me if you have any questions. If I move, if I move too fast or if you're like, I didn't get that, please. And I um, just say, hey, what was that again or whatever. All right, we're going to start at the beginning. A very good place to start. And whenever you say that, you think of Mary, I mean, Julie Andrews. All right, so we can open up to Genesis if you want to. Um, And I'm going to, um, let me see here, I think I'm, I'm going to, I think I'm going to go right to Genesis 2. Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 have two different accounts of the creation, if you read it, and it can be confusing. No, it doesn't have, I, some, most people don't notice it. In Genesis 1, the animals are created first, in Genesis 2, the animals are created second. It, it appears that way. It's not true, it's just the stories are told a little different way because there's a different focus, and I'm not going to get into that um, here. What I want to look at is Genesis 2, starting at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Now we'll stop there. We often think the garden of Eden, but it's the garden in Eden. There was a whole world outside the garden. And, and what, what, I believe that God was not expecting them to stay in the garden. He created them, and he gave them dominion right away. And he placed them in this garden. 
and we know that there's rivers flowing out. So if we have the garden here, okay, and we have these, these five, four rivers flowing out, it's like this is a real fertile area, okay? Eden and the rest of the world still waited for, for mankind to have dominion, okay? Notice they were together, they were, in Genesis 1.28, they were together when they were given dominion. Now here's where I am desperately trying to find the source. I had a friend of mine explain this to me, actually it was my mentor, um, Eric Gregson, and I've asked him, where did you find, I need to find the source. And he said, ah, this guy or that guy. And everyone he mentioned has about 10 or 15, 20 books. <laughs> it's like, I'm trying to figure out. But what he was saying in this, um, where, where um, ah, shoot, my compute, my, uh, go down. There, I'm, my, there. I'll, I'll just say it. In that, that story where God brings the animals to Abraham, to Abraham, to Adam, to name them, and Adam realizes there's no suitable helper for him. And he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes out a rib. But he doesn't take out a rib. That word is selah, and it means a side. He didn't just take out one rib and fashion a woman. I remember hearing that ever since then, men had one less rib. And I don't, it's not true, but I was like, the things that we say and then we believe, because we just believe what people tell us if they act like they know what they're doing. But what actually God did was he created Adam, and Adam is not a male human being. Most of the uses of Adam are not a male human being, but it means mankind. And we don't really, when we start to use they, or it, it gets less specific when we try to. There are three or four uses between Genesis three, in Genesis 3 and 4 where Adam, it just does seem to mean the male Adam. But he created mankind and then took one, split the Adam and created two, took out a side. So it wasn't just taking one rib, this little tiny thing, and creating a whole new, he split the Adam and created two, male and female. And it's strong, what? Yeah, it's, and it's, and there you go. And it's strong, this idea of splitting the Adam has this strong covenantal language. So he split them into two, gives them, and he gave them in and splits them into two so they can fulfill this mandate and then brings them back together in, in a covenantal relationship, I believe, making them one, male and female. Um, so, but then if we see in Genesis he also tells them there's this tree. There's two trees here that you can't eat. You can't eat of them, okay? No, it only says, only says you can't eat of one, the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that Adam does. God has said the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, some people say this is a sign that God lied because they didn't die. But what happened was death entered the world. Now, I want, this is something I want to talk about. I, don't, I want to keep that there. I'm not going to try to draw a globe. If I were Jonathan, I could probably draw. If you think about that being South America, and here's Europe, and anyway, that's the globe, okay? I, I'm not going to make it real specific, okay? God created Adam, mankind, to rule, to have dominion over the earth, okay? And then he sinned, and sin entered the world. So I'm going to think, I want you to think about this being an atmosphere. Sin entered the world. The Bible nowhere says that sin entered Adam. It says that sin entered the world, okay? So, and because sin is in the world, people succumb to sin. And we can pretty much guarantee that everybody's going to sin. And I remember hearing that it's obvious that there's original sin if you ever watched a two-year-old. That doesn't, they don't have to be taught to do wrong. They don't have to be taught to disobey. They don't have to be taught the word no. 
So some have taken that as a sign that the sin of Adam passed on to his descendants, creating everyone after Adam was inherently sinful because they were born of Adam. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says sin entered the world. And Romans says that sin entered the world through one man, and through sin, death came. But I would submit that the sin entered the world, and that two-year-old lacks the capacity to resist and overcome sin. Most people, uh, I'm going to just say, all people lack the capacity to overcome sin. So I do not, it's not, we're not born with original sin, but we're going to sin eventually because sin is in the atmosphere. Sin and death reigned once Adam gave up his dominion. Okay? So, and Roman, I'm just going to, Romans talks about this. So sin entered the world through Adam, and death came through sin, so death came to all people. Why? Because all sinned. Death didn't come to all of us because Adam sinned. Death came to us because we sinned, okay? And it says that sin isn't charged to anyone's account where there's no law. So prior, well, prior to the Mosaic law, sin wasn't charged to anybody's account. So the law came. That's when sin came. But indirectly. Indirectly. Yeah. Finish that indirectly. No. Yes, right. We don't die because of Adam's sin. Right. We're, we're not dying because Adam sinned. We're dying because we sinned. Right. But, so death reigned from Adam to the time of Moses when the, when the law came. But the law really didn't bring life. It just kind of kicked the can further down the road. But then Jesus came and the second Adam and defeated death and brought so much more then. And... and, and took back the, key, the, the dominion authority and gave it back to mankind again. But the main thing I want to say, the Bible, when Adam, when Adam fell, sin entered the world and, then, and death, and because all men sin, they die. We don't have an original sin nature because we're sons of Adam. There's sin in the atmosphere, and therefore we're going to sin because we don't have the capacity until Christ comes to overcome the sin, until we have his spirit within us, until he defeated sin and death, number one, and his spirit comes and lives inside of us. Now we have the power to overcome sin. And that's why people don't like it. When we, have, we no longer have, we still have the capacity to sin. We no longer have the propensity to sin. Yes. We do. We have the spirit. Number one, we have this, number one. Christ defeated sin and sin and Satan, sin and death on the cross, and gave us back dominion to take back authority, to use our authority. That is number one reason why we can overcome sin, and because His spirit is within us, and we're being renewed into His image, we're being transformed from glory to glory. So we have the capability of saying no to sin. But in the weakness of the flesh, mm-hmm. we don't. And there's times that we don't. Right. And so we do have the propensity to never, the capacity to not sin again. But does that mean we never will? Probably not. <laughs> I have the capacity to make really good bread, but that doesn't mean my bread always turns out right. <laughs> I know how to do it. You see? I have the, yeah. So now, so that's that. I'll come touch that a little bit. Now, in Genesis 3. Man, what time is it? Oh, we're good. In Genesis 3, it says he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim. So I want you to think of this, their compass here. We're going to put a compass here, north, south, east, 
and west, and he drove them out this way, okay? And then he placed an angel. I'm going to go try to draw an angel. I'm going to draw a stick man with wings, okay? <laughs> all right. Now, there's something interesting here, details that we often miss. He drove them out to the east. So if they're going to return to God's original plan, what direction do they need to go? California. They need to go what? California, yeah. They're going to need to head west if they want to go back to the garden, right? They're going, if, they're going to, if they want to return to God's original plan, if they want to turn to the garden, they're going to have to go west. And numerous times throughout Scripture, when humans go to the east, it's bad, and when they go to the west, it's not. It's good. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis 4, Cain went out away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 13, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Joshua 5, when Israel left Egypt, they went around Moab and entered Jordan east to west. And they entered the promised land going west. So as they entered into the garden, their promised land, they're, back, they're going back toward the garden, in essence, symbolically, metaphorically. When Israel went into exile in Babylon, they went east. And when they returned back, they went west. The wise men came from the east, so they're traveling west. Interesting thing here. Did you ever think about the fact that the wise men came from the east and they saw a star in the east? Huh. Light the, the, really, that word, seen, they see, they've seen a star in the east, the east, really means they have seen the star and it's rising. So they can't see, be in the east, come from the east and see a star. If they're seeing something in the east, they're going to travel east to go after it. But they actually tra- they came from the east, not toward the east. An interesting little thing. Another thing is the tabernacle was set up in such a way. If I can draw the tabernacle here. Get here. Okay. So the Holy of Holies was on the west end of the tabernacle. This is a very amber shore kind of thing. Is it really? So I'm not going to draw all the little details of the temple. Yes. Yeah. So as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he was moving west. The further, closer you got to God's presence in the temple, you were going west to do that. Now, another thing, the way the tribes were arranged, and I, don't remember, I have the numbers there. The tribes are arranged. I'm just going to make boxes for the tribes. Forms a cross facing east. If you could give it, get an aerial view of the, tab, the tabernacle and the way that the, the tribes camped, it would form a cross. It would like you would lay the cross down, pointing west. And I, is that west? I don't know. Interesting little detail that we often don't think about and we don't realize. We don't, we don't think about it. I challenge anybody. I'm reading it, to make a note of wherever it says somebody's traveling east or west and see what's going on in the story. I, I don't think I've got an exhaustive list here. I, I doubt it. That's West? Oh, wow. See, the closer we get. Yeah, see, that's the way we're supposed to be going. Yeah. All right. So, anyway, so they've driven out through the East, creating a pattern in Scripture that when we go West, we're heading back towards God's original plan, toward the promised land, toward the garden, toward what God desired for us all along. He's shaking his head. Well, I was just thinking about, you know, you remember back in the day, the whole go West, man? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who sang that? Who sang Go? Michael W. Michael w. Smith. Yeah. From yeah. Mantra from the yes. From yeah. This yeah. yeah. No, the way we went west, it wasn't. We had more of a manifest destiny type thing. Nah. All right. We're going to turn Genesis 4. Okay. Now, it didn't take very long for sin to have its effect 
and, and Adam's children did soon sin. Um, Cain kills his brother, and I'll just read my notes here. And God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. He's not, God is not, says nothing here about sin being inside Adam. It's at your door. It's outside of you. And he, it wants to take control of you. You must master it. Now, if Cain can be told, sin's outside your door, it's there, but you need to master it so it doesn't master you. If we have the Holy Spirit and we have Jesus, he's defeated sin, death, and the end, and Satan, then we certainly have the, can, it's something, we, we have more than what Cain had. So we can tell ourselves, it's crouching, it's outside of you. Sin is outside of us, and we need to master it, otherwise we're mastered by it. Then we have far more at our hand than Cain had. We can let it in. Yes. If we let it, we can let it in. We can let it in. Bitterness, resentment, and jealousy are sins that we allow in, and they can sit there and fester, and they can create opportunities for the enemy to harass us and to wreak havoc in our lives. But sin is always out, and, it's, and he doesn't have legal access to, to do that. We give him access in the same way that Adam gave the enemy um, dominion by his sin. All right, I know I'm giving you lots of details here, so bear with me. Just, just this detail in the Bible that we miss, that when we go, people go west in the Bible, they're going back to God's original plan. Go west, young man. I don't uh, it, I, think it, I think for me, what it does is make me pay attention to details in the Bible that I just gloss over. I don't know that we can really, because today, his presence is everywhere. We don't have to go anywhere to go to his presence. In that day, in, in the Old Testament, they needed to go somewhere to go to find his presence. We don't have to. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it just means you're supposed to face the setting sun when you pray. All right. Um, I should probably have this out. I'm going to, real quick, I think you have it on your notes. I was going to write it down. I'll write it down in a minute. The genealogy. Genealogies are not necessary history, okay? The Matthew's genealogy misses several generations because it's not chronological, it's not historical, it's not a historical thing. It's, it's a messianic prophecy. It's a, it's a confirmation. Matthew is telling his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, he, that he is the, David's descendant. And in this way, now this it seems, we don't, we don't know that anything skipped because this is the first genealogy we read. So we have Adam, and then Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now, each of their names, and I have it on your paper, I could write down, but it's on your paper. Adam means man. Seth's name means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Man appointed mortal sorrow. Then the Hallel means the blessed God. Jared means to come down, and Enoch teaching. The blessed God shall come down teaching. Then Methuselah's name is his death shall bring. Lamech's name means the weary, and Noah means rest. His death shall bring the weary rest. So in that genealogy, God is foretelling, he's making a messianic prophecy. Man appointed mortal sorrow, where man has been given appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching, and his death, the God's death, shall bring the weary rest. Again, it's pointing to the Messiah. 
in just in that genealogy. And what application is there to that? Is the idea that God was involved in every step of the way and, and pointing from the very beginning, from Adam, he began the process. And we know of the messianic promise in Genesis 3 where the, the, uh, the woman was going to crush the serpent's head and he was going to bruise her heel. as was also a messianic prophecy. But this name Methuselah, another thing to think about here is um, Methuselah's name means his death shall bring. Do you think that he lived most of his life wondering what is his death going to bring? What, what, I mean, what? And did Noah know Methuselah? He was his grandfather. And did he wonder? Did they, who, I mean, how many of them wonder what is his death going to bring? The, day, the year that Methuselah died was the year the floodwaters came upon the earth. Interesting thing is that Methuselah lived 969 years, the longest man ever recorded to live. So God was saying, Methuselah's death is going to bring the floodwaters on the earth. He didn't say all that, but he knew that this was going to happen. And Methuselah lived longer than anybody else. So God's mercy was evident. We see God's mercy in the genealogy. Okay, it's 7.50. Do you want to take a break? Any questions? We can take a five-minute break or... Tim's looking... And you're like... You're weary. I am, but it has nothing to do with the class. I knew that. I was just thinking... But that doesn't doesn't mean that anybody's death is going (laughs) to... Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Inside of us, yeah. I'm stuck there. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of original sin came from Augustine or Augustine, however you're going to pronounce his name. And Augustine, there are several things that went into it. The one, Augustine, um, he, yeah, he would say Augustine would say it was fault. And that's one thing we have we, we have to really be careful when we say, well, this came from Augustine or this came from so and so. They believe that that's what the Bible taught. But Augustine thought that sex was evil, that, that sexual intercourse, even between a man and a wife, was sinful, was fleshly. And so anything that, anything that came as a result of that couldn't be good, that, that it was sinful as well. And that, in, that idea influenced his understanding of what happened in the garden. So original sin, the idea of original sin originated with Augustine, although he would say it originated with Paul. But you can see in the Bible... God tells, first God tells Cain, sin is outside of you. And then Romans, Paul says, by one man, sin entered the world and death came because all have sinned. So Paul, you know, seems pretty clear, but I also want to, it is, I know. I remember when I first learned it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you do the yeah, but. That's your job. He's going to come up with a verse that's going to. Well, no, I think this verse is the kind of verse that Augustine was looking at. Uh, Genesis 6, mm. 5, the Lord saw okay, yeah. how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, mm-hmm. and that every inclination mm-hmm. of the thoughts of his heart yeah. was only evil right. all, all the, time. the time. Like that? Now, you can, you can read that as that's how bad... Which verse was that? That's verse 5. Verse 5, yeah. 
that as yes. that's how bad they became. Mm -hmm. Or you could make a leap and view that as that's how bad we are. Yeah. And it's not saying that's how bad we that's are. Not, it's not, no. That's how bad we became. Yes. And I, and I would also submit, go a step further, that I would question whether it's hyperbole. And, but it still indicates where they are, they're at. Right, yes, yeah. This is where they are, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, and that's, that is that verse with, with the idea of original sin that gives us the idea that anything outside of, that nobody who's not a Christian can do anything that's really of God. Because everything, even if it seems good, it's really of the devil. Because all the inclination, all the, their heart is deceitful. Everything that comes from their heart is going to be wicked. But even more than that, I think Luther, I love Luther. But his thesis was that the, the, the best saints' righteous activities come from such twisted and evil mm -hmm. motivation that, that the best, most virtuous act on the planet is idolatry. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, like, I'm not there. No, I'm not either. <laughs> I'm not either. You know, because I'm like, hey. Appreciate buddy, all Luther did, I'm but like, I'm not there. That's a good point, but what about Jesus and, like, the new yeah. creation and the new heart and the new covenant talking about heaven and the law, the law being that God's going to give you a new heart and he's yeah. going to give you power. And the old, in the old covenant, we messed this up because we lacked the power, but now in the new covenant, yeah and I and, and I also I also think that even yes even even without Christ each person is still made in the image of God and somewhere beneath all of that there is something that some stamp of God on them there, there is something inside of them that shows that they're made in the image of God. The image got distorted, it got messed up, it got veiled, it got covered, it got muddied and all that, but it's still there right. somewhere. There was no, there was no law written out. Or it, was, it, was, it was basically what, what, what a man's conscience taught him prior to the law. Well, it's, it's, the Bible tells that their sin wasn't counted against them. I mean, the, I mean, Abraham let his wife go into two guys' harems, and and didn't and God never scolded him. But that was the normal thing for the day. It wasn't. It didn't violate his conscience. And we and and Romans talks about us living according to our conscience. Even, the, even people have a law written on their conscience, written on their written on their hearts. Yeah, so some, yeah, and, right, and, when, and then when the law, that's all they had, they didn't have any way. Yes. Right, yes, yes, everybody has a sense of right and wrong, but it's also right and wrong is trained. Right, right. I mean, 
you, you, can, you can train a child to steal and they will not see it as wrong. There, yeah. there, are, there, are, there are things that you can train a child's conscience. Yes, the tri- peace child. Yes, they, they applauded Judas because that's, they saw that him fattening up the, the, he was fattening up the pig for slaughter. And that's what they saw Judas doing. And it was, it was an ultimate act of betrayal and they applauded him. Yeah. So our consciousness can be trained. So Abraham, and prior to the law, they had a conscience, but then the law came, it delineated what God's requirements were. Baseline, because the Sermon on the Mount went further. You ready to go on? Am I too deep? It's not too deep for you. This is all stuff you learned 30 years ago. Give me a little sin in my nature. Alright, you can have it if you want it. Maybe you. Not me. I ain't taking it. You, can, yeah, you are me. different than me. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's why. <laughs> well, I think some, does, it, does it absolve us of responsibility for our wrongdoing? No. And one of the arguments Paul makes in Romans is you still have a law written on your heart that you weren't doing. So don't think, you, wrote, you, you Gentiles, don't think you're any better than Jews. Right. You might not have had a law, but you had something written on your hearts that you weren't following. Still you still, yeah. So, and, and, we're, and God judges, I can't think, is there a verse or is it, sometimes you wonder if things get quoted off and up. But God judging us according to our conscience. I don't remember now. But anyway. Is it in Romans? So it's in Romans 1. I'm, I'm conf- He's setting up an argument. He's setting up an argument. But anyway. To, you, to your way of thinking, we, some, I think some people feel like, well, if, you, if we don't, if we take away the idea of original sin, somehow then we're absolved, or, or somehow we're not as responsible or something like, and you're thinking something. I'm not really making a, a big No, argument. I know. I'm just suggesting that there's never been a human. No. Who, who didn't sin. Right. And I do like the idea of Oh, yeah. Instead of viewing the idea of inherited guilt. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. The, the, the concept that like a baby is conceived in the womb, and that baby, before it's done anything, deserves to be cut off from God's love and punished in the fires of hell forever. Oh. That's classical Christian doctrine. Yeah. And I don't mm-hmm. believe it. Mm-mm. Yeah. Now this brings me to because you say inherited weakness. In reality, Adam was it weakness or was it innocence? He didn't know till he ate of the tree. Ignorance is not the same thing. No, it's not. I know. And so it, it's it a weakness. Was Adam necessarily weak or was he ignorant? Now we're getting even deeper than what deeper philosophical questions. Because we are strengthened. How are we strengthened? Adam didn't have the spirit. He had God walking them, but he didn't have the spirit within him. I was thinking Paul persecuting the church later claimed not God had mercy on me. No, right. Even though I was really, really wicked. What he says is Jesus, specifically Jesus, mm-hmm. had mercy on me because what I did, I did in ignorance. In ignorance. Yeah. Paul saying, Jesus knew that I was 100% guilty. 
Yeah. 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 Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it Well, it does seem like that, but it hasn't had the weight of everything. I know. That's, I know. And he didn't know. I did, he did, but he did. He, yeah. I do. They make, they make it, yeah. Well, Eve didn't. No, Eve didn't. No, I know. Adam, Adam deliberately disobeyed. Of course she knew. She knew. Well, we don't know. We knew that she was in Adam when God gave the, the well, commandments. But she innocently. Well, um, I wonder, my theory is... Um, I, I think Paul says Eve was deceived yeah. and became a trans- transgressor because she was deceived. And deceit, deceit gives the idea that you're thinking one thing and it's not truth. Yeah. Now, did the serpent, well, and Eve said that the serpent deceived me and I ate. So did he blind her? Did he, or did she not know fully what God had said? But then why didn't Adam tell, she was there, she heard it. What? I don't know. An upending But Adam was there. I know. He was there. Yeah. And he, he didn't do it. And then they say, now, my well, answer is typically. See now, now one of the things that I, 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 one of the things, Eve, Eve's intention was good. She saw the fruit. She thought that it would make her like God. What she forgot was she was already like God. She believed that what the servant was telling her was that she would do this. It was a good thing to do. She believed that it would honor God and bring Him glory. She would be like Him. She was trying to be like Him, forgetting she already was. Adam knew exactly what he was doing. I question. I don't know that she did. But I could be wrong. I don't know what all Eve knew inherently because she was part of Adam when God gave all that information. That's, see, I don't know. Yeah, but then I come back with, but men deliberately disobeyed. They were trying to please the woman rather than God. She was at least trying to please God, so he was irresponsible. Like she was deceived. <laughs> We can have that discussion. Well, it would be more fun if you were serious and just 
<laughs> not just playing devil's advocate. Then we're gonna really we can really get into it, right? It is. There is no passage in the Bible that says that Eve, it was always Adam. Adam sinned. It was through one man that sinned into the world. It does say that Eve, Paul said that Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. I believe he was correcting false teaching in saying that. But most of the scripture lays the responsibility of the sin at Adam's feet. Now, whether it's as complementarians or patriarchalists will say, it was an upending, he reneged on his, he neglected his duty. Mm-hmm. That's what it was used for, yes. But that was partly because of the influence of Greek philosophy. Not really, but well, that's a whole other story. I believe it is anyway. Um, translators got influenced that way. We're going to get on to Noah's covenant. Okay. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 3. The Lord says to Noah, My spirit shall not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, and their days shall be 120 years. I'm going to turn to... Uh, six over here, so that, um, yeah, okay. Um, now, God was not declaring man's lifespan. He was declaring, this is how long it's going to be, it's going to be the, the, till the end, till he was going to take care of matters, because every thought, everything they did was evil, even the thoughts of their heart. Were we all right? God says you're not, you're not going to keep going. Who said that? Oh. <laughs> Hey, okay. <laughs> now, it's interesting, verse 6 raises an interesting thing. When you start to think about the foreknowledge of God, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. An interesting thing to think about, if you think that God knows everything in advance, then how could he regret something? The idea is that he was... But, and it, notice here, um, he doesn't say anything about anger. He was deeply troubled. We still, don't, we still don't have a law. We don't have anger yet. And we often read this account of the flood through the lens of the Mosaic Covenant and this idea that God is punishing. We believe that God is bringing down judgment or wrath. But Paul tells us that God didn't count their sins against them before the law came. Right. So before the law, there was no judgment. There was no wrath before the law. The flood was a result of God's deep grief at how incredibly evil mankind had become. Yes. A devil's advocate? Or? No, no, no. I'm thinking of the passage where it says that Jesus went to preach to the spirits in prison. Oh, right. And how the church fathers thought the people who died in the flood mm-hmm. were the spirits in prison. Oh, wow. And that Jesus, during the, you know, in between his death and resurrection, he went to proclaim the gospel to these people. Oh. Just those? Oh, those pro- Okay, yeah. And, and why not? I would, I would wonder if it would be those, all those prior to the law. I don't know. Interesting. Sodom and Gomorrah? Hey. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So God knew that he needed need to put a stop to this and decides he's going to start over again. This is the, the, one, this is the one section that dispensationalism kind of seems to have a footing in my mind because it's the only place where it says God regretted and he's going to wipe them off and start over again. So it sounds like the end of one dispensation and the beginning of another. And it's the only, the only remember we talked about that last week. Somebody should be interacting. Um, well, Moses is constantly pleading with God not to wipe them off the face of the earth. I mean, but because he, he does, God keeps saying, I'm just going to wipe them all out and I'll start over with you, but he never does. Yeah. 
So you can interact with the yes. All right. So verse 18. Uh, let me get down here because I have in my notes 18 and 22. And sometimes I'll combine verses to... Um, in verse 18, uh, God tells Noah, I will, I will establish my covenant with you. You will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And then goes on what he's supposed to bring. And then Noah did everything that God, just as God has commanded. So in, verse, in chapter 6, God is telling Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and this is what I want you to do. When God makes a covenant with each individual he made a covenant with, I know Abraham and, and the Israelites and... Um, interesting, and I think it's in the new, but I'm not going to make that connection right now. He tests them. I'm going to make a covenant with you now. This is what this is what I'm expecting you, and you're going to have the faith. With Noah, he's saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you now. This is what I want you to do. Okay, it's like he's testing Abraham's faith. Is Abraham going to be faithful? It, the covenant is not. It's, it's it's an invitation to Noah. This is his means of, in a sense, entering into the covenant, being and and. Fulfilling his loyalty end of the covenant. Are you with me? Do you still understand that in relation to? Because this is going to be a grant covenant. Well, I'll, I'll get to it when I get there. Ask me about that when I get there. So, in chapter six, there's not a covenant yet. God is telling Noah, "I'm going to establish a covenant. I will establish a covenant with you, and you will enter the ark." And he tells him some things he wants him to do. And then Noah obeys God, believes him, he's faithful to do what God asks him to do. And then in chapter 9, in, um, I'm gonna get there, in verse 9-11, I now establish my covenant with you. So in chapter 6, he's promising a covenant and, and asking him to do this, to make this boat, to bring these people on, his family on board, and all these animals. Now, if, Adam had, if Noah hadn't obeyed, there would be no covenant, there would be no more people. Or would God have waited and find somebody else? I don't know. But... It, um, because, he wasn't, the covenant, because the covenant wasn't yet established in Genesis 6, we're not looking at his obligations. It's a, it's a matter of faith, a response for Noah. He's inviting Noah to respond. We see that again in the Abrahamic covenant, and we see it also in the new covenant. God has done everything for the new covenant, but he invites a faith response from us to enter into that new covenant. Um, now, this verse 18 is the first place we hear of covenant, Okay. Noah builds the ark, rain and floods come, everything's destroyed. After 40 days, the rain stops, floodwaters go away, and Noah gets off. Now, one, one elephant in the room in many churches is, was this a local flood or a global flood? Well, fossil, record, fossil records seem to indicate there's been a great flood on every continent in the world. And many uh, other cultures, ancient cultures, have a story of the flood similar. The Greeks have a flood decalion, and you can find Greek coins with a picture of Decaian's flood, but with a figure that looks like figures that look like Noah and his wife. So there seems to be a mixing in various cultures of the flood story. So if you go, of course, Greece is the Mediterranean, it's the Middle East. So it still could have been a, a relatively localized flood and still have those ancient civilizations having similar stories because they all came from the same area. So the, the fossil record seems to indicate a global flood, but the words used, the language used, seems to indicate local. The word used for earth is arita, and it indicates a more local area. Um, both sides are plausible, in my opinion, and it's not something that I get hung up on. And I think you can be, believe it was global or local and still take the Bible seriously. The point is, everybody outside the ark was killed. That's the point. Now, we get down further, and I'm going to bring that up when we come down there. Okay? 
Oh, maybe I'll just go down there real quick. Where am I? Now I'll get there when I get there rather than skipping ahead. Keep that thought in mind. We'll come back to that a little bit um, because there's questions that arise. Well, then God is lying when he promises him that there's not going to be any flood. And that's been the argument. And I'll, and I'll answer that or attempt to. I don't know. Genesis 8, God says to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Um, we don't pay attention to details. All that east and west, the point of that was details. Notice that he tells him, you're going to enter the, uh, the ark, you and your sons and your wife and their wives. And then on exiting, he said, I want you to leave the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives. And it's like God is not just renewing a covenant with mankind. He's also restoring things back to the way they were in the garden, that man is with his wife. It's not man and then woman. It's not all the men get off and all the women. It's the wives and the husbands get off together. And he's restoring that back. But what does Noah do? Well, Noah went out and his sons, and his wife and his sons once with him. So it was the, the idea, the patriarchal filter was so entrenched in Noah. And that God was trying to restore it, but it wasn't going to be restored fully until, well, I want to say till Jesus restores it, but back to the way it was, and he does, but it still involves a partnership on our part to see what God's original plan is for the relationship between men and women. Um, so, chapter 9. Even the fact that it's the flood, it's going back to, the, to Genesis. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going right back yes. to Genesis. Right. That he's going, the, the creation itself is so ruined that I need to start back over in the beginning. Yes. He goes back to the watery chaos and then he brings forth. Oh, I like that. Yeah, I never thought about that, but yeah. It really is an act of recreation. It is, and then when they, and then when they come off, the first thing he says to Noah is be fruitful and increase the in number and fill the earth. So he gives again the command that he gave to Adam in the garden. Yeah. You're starting over again. The creation has been restored. It has been brought out again. Now I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The only striking difference is there's no talk of dominion in Noah's command. Adam was told, be fruitful, multiply the earth, fill, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Noah can't be told that because Noah no longer has dominion. That had been lost, and it would not be restored until Jesus came and restores it. So Noah can't take dominion, but it can be fruitful, multiply, and continue from there and fill the creation, this new created earth that God had, was establishing again. Um, if you want to go down to verses 9 and 7, now he's saying, okay, this covenant is just, I established my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood. Never again will be the flood destroy the earth. And this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. And never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. What? It's a post-it note for God, so he doesn't It is. Well, right. I know as I'm thinking. I'm reading that thing. I, I want to stop and say, you really think God needed to remind himself, or was he really trying to remind Noah? Think about what Noah had just experienced. You want to think about some PTSD. He had just spent 40 days and nights of continual rain. Now, if you spent too much time in Delaware in the middle of winter, and that gray dreary, we've never had 40 days. Could you imagine it raining the entire month of June? Once football's over and it rains till the end of March, 
That would be depressing. But they'd never seen rain before. They don't, they didn't. Floodwaters covered everything. And then they spent a full year on the ark. And how many screams did they hear? People clinging to stuff outside their boat. And they couldn't bring anybody on. A full year on the ark feeding massive amounts of animals, cleaning out all those stalls. I'm, I'm told that horses, like 50 pounds a day, when cleaning out their stalls. Now multiply that by all the animals they had. All that time floating, I have no idea what it was going to look like once they got off the ark. No, I know. And then when they do exit the ark, nothing looks the same. Everything's changed. The landscape's drowned. There's dead bodies everywhere. Let's, let's just be honest here. They're getting off. They got, everyone's drowned. Nobody, nothing looks the same. Animals, humans, laborer. The landscape is significantly changed. Nothing looks familiar. Now, how are you... Now, how are you going to feel experiencing all that the next time you feel a drop of rain? Now, I, am, I just had frozen shoulder last year, and the way it started was spasms right behind my shoulder blade. And I went to chiropractor the other day. I said, I'm starting to have a lot of spasms in my shoulder blade. And you know what I'm thinking. I'm thinking frozen shoulder again. I'm like, I'm, I'm not terrified, but I'm like, I don't want to go through that again. And that's something relatively mild compared to what Moses went, or Noah went through. So you just come off the ark. The, what is the, the, the fear that he could possibly feel at a rain cloud or a drop of rain? Can we, can we put ourselves in his shoes? And in that state of mind, God says, look at that rainbow. I'm not going to flood the earth again. You don't need to worry about it. It's, 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 the promise is, is not... So this is why I'm saying God isn't necessarily lying because there are local floods. We can't necessarily say, well, if it was a local, then God's lying. God's intent is, is not to say there's not going to be any floods as much as say, I am never going to do this to mankind again. You don't need to be afraid of the rain. You don't need to be afraid of storms. It's going to be okay. I promise you, I will never destroy the earth again. The rainbow was hope. It was a reminder to him. that and to, uh, Yes, and it was a sign of hope. And it was, he could look at the rainbow as a rain and realize... God's not going to destroy the earth again. I don't have to worry about that. And gradually, I mean, obviously we get over our PTSD. But um, that's, this, is where, this is where it comes back to. I'm not all that concerned about being global local, even though my upbringing and most of my years in school and in homeschooling, it's hammered in you. Well, if, if it's not local, if it wasn't global, then God was lying here. And I don't know. God wasn't lying. God wasn't necessary. God often doesn't necessarily try to make everything exactly literal and accept, accept it. Uh, or, but rather to speak to our hearts, what we need to hear. I do remember thinking, as a fundamentalist Christian going to college and hearing my professors say, uh, if you had an ancient worldview and there was a flood like this, in your mind, you didn't even know about the rest right. of the world. That is the whole world. That is the whole world. They weren't lying. That, right, that is the whole world. But then it was the whole world. Yeah. And now, personally, was the global local? I don't know and I don't really care. Uh, like I said, the fossil record seems to indicate global, but the language and other things seem to indicate local. And it doesn't, but God's not lying. He's telling Noah, I'm not going to do this again. You can relax. It's never going to happen again. Well, that was the point of it. Hmm? I just felt so uncomfortable when my teachers would say things like that. Yeah? Are you uncomfortable now? No. Most of my schooling was me saying, huh? how could they say that? Yeah, and you, and you think about, it, it, it was. I mean, even up into the, the 14, 1500s, 
they thought that their, Europe and Asia was all there was to the globe. They didn't, and so in, in the ancient Near East, they, it, was, it, was, it was their entire known world. That was what it was. All right. I've said this is a grant covenant, and when I look at it, okay, um, God takes on himself. He's, he's, God initiates this contact, this covenant, and he promises blessings to Noah. And he pr promises he's never going to punish again. There's no sign of the only thing that Noah is asked to do is to build this ark. But it's not a requirement. We don't know what God would have done if he, did, if he hadn't wanted to do it. So we see it's based on God's promise. I'm not going to do this again. I'm going to make this covenant with you and with mankind. I'm never going to flood the earth again. Be fruitful. Fill the earth. Go on. It's fine. You can go ahead. I've got this covenant with you. I'm restoring that the earth. I'm restoring creation. I'm restoring the covenant that I made with Noah. It's okay. So he's, he's making this. He's also promising him. He's not saying, now, Noah, if you continue to obey me, then I will continue to go with you. Noah, if you make sure to not do such and such, if you do this, there's no, there's no if-thens in, in the language. His descendants are included. This is the, um, yeah, this is the sign of the covenant established between me and all life on earth. So everything from then on is, is and it's based on Noah's, is a response to Noah's loyalty. That we see that this is a grant covenant, okay? A little weaker evidence for this than the other grant covenants we'll go over, a little, a little bit weaker. But you see how we're, you see how we're, you see how it's not two equals, Right? Because God's not equal to Noah. And God isn't conquering Noah and telling him, you do this, 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 and then I'll protect you. He's promising him really a full life. And he's saying, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. There's not a whole lot of promises in this covenant to really be able to list like there are in some of the others. Um, so it, the only one left is the grant covenant. And so it, it, by, by process of elimination too. But like I said, the argument for this one being a grant is weaker than the others we're going to learn about. Um, we're going we're gonna to come to a close here, real quick here, shortly. Just going to finish the last little bit. Noah gets drunk. Ham sees him and his brothers and tells his brothers apparently in a mocking way. And I find it really interesting. Uh, in early in my homeschool years, I was told this is why the Africans were slaved, enslaved. Because of the curse on Ham. That Cain, he would be servants of Ham and Japheth. And Japheth's descendants are Europeans. Canaan's descendants are the Middle Easterns. And Ham's descendants are the Africans. And I'm like, so sad. So sad that the church accepts a, a horrible institution in the 19th centuries based on a prophecy that had nothing really to do with, with them. So I, I just found that interesting. Um, yeah, like I said, Japheth, they're the Europeans. They go, um, Ham was the ancestor to the Africans who, and the Can Canaanites, because his name was Canaan, and they, they believed that he just went down into Africa and Shem was the ancestor to the Arabs and the Jews. That's where we get the word Semite. Interesting um, thing. Let me see here. We have it here. I wish I'd put my verses in here. I didn't. So that I could, I hate when I say something and then I don't remember what verse it's in. Interesting thing about Shem is he outlived Abraham. Shem was, or he lived into Abraham's age. I'm thinking he outlived Abraham. I'd have to add it up or look at my, in, but um, Shem bridges the, the primeval and the patriarchal ages. He was about 390 when Abraham was born, and he died when he was about 600. So he lived for 200, 210 years or so at the same time Abraham lived, which will come, but they'll come back to that when we talk about Abraham. Um, we are at, anybody got any questions? Because I, mean, I was going to talk about the Tower of Babel because I want to, 
I don't have up there. Well, we were just talking about whatever. We kept talking. I didn't, what did we talk about? Oh, whether or not Adam Eve was deceived or she knew what she was doing. Or, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> we, we, we will at some point in time. When I, maybe, maybe when I preach on it, then we can get the discussion going. We can have all the... Um, anyway, so they get together. Um, they didn't want to be scattered. God wanted them to, to fill the earth. The, to fill the earth isn't just everybody to have a lot of babies. It's spread out. That's what he asked Adam to do. Adam was, Adam was in a garden, was in a green land, and they were supposed to fill the earth. And so they, were allowed, they were told to subdue it. Noah gets off the ark, and once he told, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You don't want to stay in this little, little, this little place here, this cloistered little community. Why do we like to do that? Why do we like to stay inside of our, why do we like to stay within our comfortable walls? Is it safer? Do what? It's, yeah, it's safer. But God's command was to fill the earth. Plus, we're in Genesis 11, by the way, if you want to turn there. So, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. They want to make a name for themselves. Is it wrong to want, to make, is it wrong to want a good name, to want to make a name for yourself? Because what did God tell Abraham? I will make your name great. There's their means of doing it outside of his plan. They're not going to scatter. They're going to stay together. They're going to make a name for themselves, themselves. They're going to build this tower to heavens. Now, most coloring books have this huge tower that goes up into the skies. Um, I like to suggest it wasn't necessarily that, that it reached the skies as much as the place where heaven and earth met, where the worshipers came together. Um, there was another thing I was reading about that whole thing. Um, that's, that's another thing. They're... That's it. That's another thing. God had to come down to see them. Yeah. Now I was reading something. It was probably likely like a ziggurat or a pyramid type thing. I, I was reading somewhere. It. It. I'm thinking. Okay, let me back up. Reading somewhere that seemed to indicate that parts of the Tower of Babel are still standing. I'm like, no, we can't still be there. I mean, I know stuff from Greece and Rome is standing, and still some stuff. But that old, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't look it up because I didn't. Um, but we do know that God promised Abraham to make his name great. They wanted to make their name great, but they wanted to do it their own way. And God says, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language. So they will not understand each other. And so he scattered them. So you guys aren't going to scatter? I'm going to scatter you. Okay? And he scattered them. That's why the place is called Babel. It later did become Babylon. That area became known as Babylon. Um, um, okay, just, um, just a few things here. So um, these, these, the people here were basically trying to replicate a meeting place between God and heaven on their own terms where they could, they could meet God, like I said, on their own terms. God has to come down. But Zephaniah promises a time that I will change the speech of the peoples to a new, to a pure speech. And... Acts talks about a new language coming on the people when the Holy Spirit came. And so we have now have, as a result of Acts and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, we have a spiritual language that crosses all barriers. Now, we can't necessarily communicate with each other. Obviously, we're communicating with the heavens. We're communicating with God through this. 
but I find it interesting when he was, he's saying if they have one language, nothing will be impossible for them. And we have one common language with God, and nothing's going to be impossible for us. What they wanted to do, through the, that, what God, um, the power that God withheld from them, because they chose their own means of making a name for themselves, God has given to us who freely seek his name. And he restores a lot of pure speech to us, to his believers as part of the... Let me, let me, before, I, before I get ahead of myself there, let me, I, don't, I, I don't want to take this verse out of context and say it's something, saying something is not. There it is. Oh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I want to make sure this is... What verse is it? Sorry about this. Yeah. I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call in the name of the Lord, serve him. My worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, Jerusalem, you will not put the shame for all the... So he's speaking of a foretelling of this new covenant day that we would all share one language. And we will have a language now. Nothing, we will have the power that nothing will be impossible for us. What happened in Tower Babel when they weren't scattered, because they're, they're having, they wouldn't scatter, God confuses their language, and then he restores language to his people, those who seek his name. Any questions? It was a real quick run through the first 11 chapters. Any questions on anything? So where do you see the different three covenants again? And like just real quick in the Genesis chapters. Okay. Um, not in Genesis chapters. Oh, yeah. Jacob and the, the, con, the covenant between Jacob and Abimelech. Jacob and Laban. There you go. Okay, it was a kinship. There are two equals that came together. We do not have any examples of vassal covenants in the, in the Genesis account. That comes in, in, in the Mosaic covenant. But I, I was trying to think of other interactions between sovereigns, and I would have to look all the way through King, I think, First and Second Kings to really find um, any, anything that one of the conquering kings did to Israel to see if I could find any type of that. But uh, we do see it in historical chronicles, Alexander the Great, and when the Caesars conquered people, they created this type of covenant with them. Um, and then the Grant Covenant, we see that here in Noah, we're going to see it more clearly with Abraham and David. We don't see it as clearly with Abraham. Really, Noah, I'm sorry. The main reason we know it's not one of these is, is the absence, the language that's not there, that is typically there. In, well, kinship, they're not equals. And it doesn't have the language of a vassal covenant. He's not obligating Noah to anything when he makes the covenant. And so he's... He's just, yeah, he's obligated himself that no matter what you do, I'm going to hold up my end. I'm not going to destroy you again. But the language isn't quite as clear there. But do we understand the difference? Yes. Well, I was going to remember that time that when Israel, was it right after they came into the promised land or was traveling in the promised land mm-hmm. or traveling to the promised land in the wilderness? They made a covenant. They made a covenant. They were, got, they were fooled by this one group of people that acted like they came, acted like they came from long far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And God they had old moldy bread. They had old moldy yeah. bread, yeah. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder what kind of covenant they made and what, why did God not want them to enter into a covenant? That'd be interesting. I'll, I'll look that up. That's probably in Deuteronomy because it's not in the first four books. They ended up making them. They said, fine, we won't kill you, but you're going to carry our firewood. They did. They, end up, they did end up making more of a, like a vassal covenant with them, and they were fine with it. So and. And I think... They didn't even fight them. They just willingly came. 
No, right, yeah. Do we understand the difference between the three covenants? Because they're, they're all three, um, they're all three going to come in in our further as we go on further. Some of the other stuff was just interesting tidbit, tidbits. The east-west thing, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything for us today except to teach us that there are things in the Bible. We tend to take the Bible literally. We have, and that's one of the things with dispensational theology and much. We take the Bible literally rather than literarily. And what I mean by literarily is not everything is... Um, it, it literarily means we look at the type of literature it is and what's going on and, and all, and not necessarily. If it says this, that's exactly what it means. The difference, and so one of the things that the the details aren't necessarily to show God's accuracy. I don't believe as much as Him to show what He's about. So the East-West thing, it wasn't like He was such a stickler on the direction of things, where, where it meant as much as telling people, letting letting those the readers know when people were heading toward God's plan or away from God's plan, and the blessings and the curses that came as a result of that. Same with the same with the, the genealogy. He was trying to say something through the genealogy. And um, not necessarily keep an accurate record of who's who. It's interesting that the writers thought it was important to say they went to the east. Right. Okay, why, why, why yeah. And is and because I don't believe I don't believe any of the writers dictated took dictation word for word I mean, by what. Well. In the land of Nod, east, east of, of Eden. Eden. I always found that just haunting and poetic. And right. There's this ache in it that instead of being in, in Eden, Eden, where the Lord is, and where, mm-hmm. where the Lord wanted him, yeah. he's, he's like, there's just something yeah. so heartbreaking about that. Mm-hmm. You know, that phrase just. Yeah. I think Steinbeck wrote a novel called East of Eden, didn't he? Oh, I think he did. Yes. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. Does anybody online have any questions? If they, they're allowed to post questions, they ought to. Because I want to have a time for questions. I want to be able to break in time for questions or discuss anything yeah, anybody's I, thinking of. Halfway through this, I realized that instead of posting it on our DTF page, I posted it on our normal church page. Oh, okay. Maybe this can be an advertiser. Hey, y'all can come join the DTS page now. This is what you're missing out on. I'm sorry. I'm not <laughs> that's a, no, that's all right. It wasn't on purpose. No, I get it. That's all right. Yeah. You think about another observation the sun. When it came up, always travel to the always west. travels to the west every day. Every day, the they sun. Where, I mean, yeah. Yeah, they didn't necessarily know where it went, but it always came up in the east and went to the west. Yeah, the sun always back. travels to the west. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was kind of the order of things. Yeah, it always east rolled west. west instead of west. Yeah, and I, you know, particularly it's interesting in the Israelites because they it would have been more natural to travel west to east. But they went around it in such a way, and I'd have to look at a map and get that. I remember, remember seeing it when somebody was explaining it, that the way they did it was they, they, it would, they had to finagle it to go west, east to west. It would have been more natural. Right, yeah. All right, that's, um, that's the end of this lesson. And I, I mean, and if nobody has any questions, um, it feels odd to end in prayer, but yet appropriate to end in prayer. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's just where my brain goes when I'm in two different parts of my brain. Because this is more teaching than preaching. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I know. Well, Father, I thank you that you have condescended to our world to restore us to yourself. I thank you that you have entered numerously into covenants with various um, peoples 
and that you have um, um, emptied yourself to invite us into a covenant with you. I pray that the things that we learn would not be merely head knowledge, but there would be sticking points, possibly even probably individual sticking points for each one of us, light bulbs, things that you were able to, um, your spirit were able to um, highlight in our minds and it becomes a rhema. Um, I pray that as we learn, we can learn more about you and that's the whole, that's the whole idea behind um, studying your words, not just for head knowledge, but to learn more about you, to learn who you are. And, and then in knowing who you are, we offer a response to, to who you are, a, a response of faith, a response of joy, a response of praise to what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.